Morning, New Hope family. Glad to be back with you. Whether you're brand new here or not, your family with us. Glad that you're here and taking part, and especially for our, our broadcast viewing audience, glad that you're part of the service too. We're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning, jumping back into E2E. So if you brought a Bible with you, um, go ahead and turn to Exodus 21. We'll get there in just a minute. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll see the verses up on the screen as well. And um, there's also Bibles in some of the chairs in front of you. A couple details, there's E2E books, and this is the study that we're doing. If you're new here, they're out in the atrium, and you can pick them up. They're free this morning. Um, Normally, we sell them for $100, but for you guys, they're free, okay? (laughs) I'm just messing with you. They're free. There's there's plenty of them on the tables out there. We're in uh, Lesson 35 this week, and it's it's intended, it's designed to be a match for what I'm teaching this morning, so you'll see the link between it. Um, Also, I want to reemphasize what Darla mentioned in the video announcements in case you didn't catch that. This uh, class that Kyle is doing, uh, it's actually in a couple weeks, it's a three-week-long class at Light on a Hill, and it's intended to help you share your faith about Christ. If you have somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus, this would be a great class for you. Kyle's going to do a great job with it. There's already 40 people signed up, but there's an opening for a few more individuals if you want to sign up. So let us know or catch up with someone in the atrium this morning, and they'll be happy to get you on the list. Um, the, the last thing is both my, my burden and my privilege to share with you, and it is that our good friend Ken Reeder passed away yesterday, and Ken is just a stalwart friend, of a saint in the church, and... Uh, really going to miss him. So you won't see him coming through the doors here anymore because he stepped through the gates of heaven yesterday at 11 o'clock in the morning. Pat and her family are doing really good. Um, Obviously, huge loss. Would love to have him back, but he was such a um, remarkable individual. He had a great sense of humor. Ken and I are coming back from hunting up north one time, and he kept drifting off the road, and he was hitting the rumble strips and. They, they would roar every time, and then he'd look at me and say, I'm just testing to make sure they still work. <laughs> He's very quick like that. We did a lot of fishing trips together. I'm going to miss him a lot, a mentor in my life. But we're going to celebrate his life on Wednesday morning. There'll be a memorial service at um, 11 o'clock. So you can watch for more information about that. Well, I want to pray with you first before we step into the uh, um, story in Exodus 21 this morning. Would you bow with me? Father, we're asking right up front that you would honor the fact that we've taken this time to be here, to be part of this. So whether we're doing it from home or here in the auditorium, we're asking that you would first recognize that, that we've chosen to be part of looking into your word and worshiping you, and we ask for your blessing upon that in return, that you would give us insight and understanding and an ability to speak not only into our lives, that you would do that, but you would use us to speak into the lives of people who are precious to us. And perhaps even today or this week, God, that you would use the things we learned this morning to help others understand you better. We pray in the majestic name of Jesus that we would come before you with a heart that's ready to be shaped by you. And all God's people said, amen. If you think back what we looked at over the last number of weeks with the Mount Sinai experience, you remember that they've moved from this epic high in Exodus around the mid-13, 14 chapter all the way to chapter 20, this massive group of people who have left Egypt where Pharaoh was confronted and the devastating plagues took place, 
right into the walking across the Red Sea on the dry ocean floor. From there, they move into the wilderness where they've, they've got the quail and the manna provided for them every day and water's coming out of a rock. On top of all of that, they find themselves at this place at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're not there by accident. They're there completely because God's pillar led them there, this whirlwind that lights up like a searchlight, guiding them at night and during the daytime. And then they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai. And, and if all that wasn't enough, on top of being at the base, after all that experience, God puts on a sound and light show like no one has ever seen. It's spectacular, shaking the ground, rocking the earth, lightning, fire, smoke, everything you could possibly want, and then God's voice thunders from heaven, rocking their world, literally. When you come to chapter 21, chapter 22, and chapter 23, you find that it's somewhat less entertaining. It's not as intriguing as what they've just gone through. To say that it's less entertaining, entertaining is actually a pretty significant understatement. It's a portion of the Bible people usually skip over. They really don't find much use for it, and many head straight to the golden calf incident in chapter 32. We're going to get there next week, and it's awesome. You get to see Moses make people actually drink liquid gold. They're total rebels, and he grinds the gold into powder, and it, I'll save that for another time. So here's the reality, though. The, the fact that these chapters are in the Bible, it means that God wants us to know them. There's something there that He wants us to understand, so it demands attention. And it begins like this, with God telling Moses, you see this in verse 1 on the screen, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. And from that point, God launches a long list of rules, of do's and don'ts for everyday life. And the first part, it covers subjects like <clears throat> what to do in the case of a wrongful death, or how to write a loan, or what if your ox gets loose and gores somebody. And it goes through all kinds of descriptions of that nature. So chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, they're called the Book of the Covenant. And the title actually comes from chapter 24. Look with me at verse 7. Then he took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, unless you happen to be a lawyer, or unless you really appreciate the structure of law, you're probably not putting these chapters on your list of must-reads just because it's so full of detail. However, there are overarching principles in here that are really important for you to know. And what you're going to gain, we're just going to look at one example this morning. What you'll gain by looking at them is you get greater insight into God, especially God's justice. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. It shouldn't be surprising that justice is right at the forefront of these chapters, and it's the theme that dominates because we've got a completely new nation, and they have to do life with each other. There are people who have been called by God, and now they've got social life to do together. They're in subjection before God, but they're going to do life in front of each other. It surprises many people to learn that God loves justice. God absolutely loves justice. And I'm not talking about the social constructs that we attach to it and try and label it with things from our culture. I'm talking about real, true, biblical justice. You cannot be a righteous God and not be also a just God, and that's what comes leaking off the pages here. 
Now, in Moses' time, during this particular era, other civilizations already had in place similar laws. And they had codified them, written them down, and it was part of their society, such as the Code of Hammurabi. Many of you probably learned about the Code of Hammurabi maybe when you're in high school in history class, or, or perhaps you've had the privilege of going to Paris and you've been in the Louvre in the museum. And let me put an image for you on the screen of the Code of Hammurabi. This is a stele, and, and it was found in Babylon, in ancient Babylon. It actually was found piled into a wall with a bunch of rocks. But if you get very close to it, what you find in very small letters, written in multiple languages, are the codes of law that controlled how people lived in Babylon, and it would spread out to the nations that the Babylonian Empire ruled over. Well, it also would be true that some of the laws that you find in the book of Exodus are very similar to those that archaeologists have recently uncovered from other nations all around the world, which wouldn't be surprising to us because most cultures have had long-standing rules about murder and about bribery and about stealing, yet for all the parallels that you find between the Bible and other cultures, the differences are even more remarkable. One example for you would be the Book of the Covenant differs greatly in the form of the punishments. Let me show you the contrast. We'll use the Code of Hammurabi. When somebody was caught stealing, this is what the Code of Hammurabi said would happen. If a thief made a breach in a house, they shall put him to death in front of the breach and wall him in. If a thief committed robbery and has been caught, that thief shall be put to death. God's law is not like that. It's not cruel and harsh. In Babylon, you'd be completely wanting to not be caught because they're not only going to kill you, they're going to use you for mortar in the wall. Obviously, that'd be like a big poster board to everybody who's thinking of stealing because that guy, whoever stole, would now become part of the rock structure. And they're going to wall him in. But God's rules, the way that He sets up the Book of the Covenant, is not cruel. It's not unjust because He's a just God. He's a righteous God. So what God does is He protects the property. At the same time, He doesn't want to destroy life. So watch the way God says it, Exodus 22.3. A thief must certainly make restitution, but if he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. Catch what's going on here. God says putting a thief to death is unjust. That would be putting possessions over human life. God says human life is way more valuable than possessions, but if they can't afford it, then they're going to have to actually work off what they did. So the thief gets what he deserves, the victim is made whole, and there's justice all the way around because God is a just God. Now, another significant difference is that God's law, when you read through those things, if you get a chance to, God's law provides protection for women and the poor. And you may not think that's remarkable, but it never existed at this time. No other nation on earth cared what happened to the poor, and they certainly didn't care about women. They treated them like furniture. So God's law was the first one to elevate the poor and to elevate women to such a status that they were peer groups, and you see that coming out throughout these passages. It was unheard of in the ancient world. But the biggest difference, the big, biggest difference that you find is that no other nation on earth had ever entered into a covenant with Almighty God, where other laws were written by other nations in their own words. Here, the God of all the earth clarifies what heavenly justice actually looks like.
So these decrees that He's given, these ordinances that He's given to Moses, they specify how the Ten Commandments that He'd given earlier actually play out in ordinary daily life. Now remember, this is an agricultural world. Israel is about to become an agrarian society. So there's regulations and there's rules like about livestock, grazing, and what you should do with your livestock, which seems really mundane and really ordinary, and it causes people to say, yeah, this doesn't apply to me. I'm jumping over. I want to see about that golden calf. That's pretty cool. Until it's your field of grain that's getting stomped by your neighbor's cow. And then you want restitution. Then you want something to be made whole. There are things that make these words in the book of the covenant completely different, though, from the Ten Commandments. And here's how. It's format. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. Look at me on the screen. Exodus 32, the tablets, speaking of the Ten Commandments, were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. In the book of the covenant that you're about to look at, Moses is serving as a scribe, and it's described this way, Exodus 24.3, then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So where the Ten Commandments are these overarching absolutes. The Book of the Covenant deals with really specific situation, and it provides legal precedent when people get into trouble to settle disputes. So if I was going to do a, a big summary description, it would be like this. The, the Book of the Covenant is about living for God in the daily grind of our ordinary life. And that's where we live life, isn't it, church? In the ordinary. We live it in the simplistic day in, day out, grinding our life away. Gratefully, God is interested in the ordinary things of our lives. And because He's a just God, He puts rules in place because He has standards. So let's frame it this way. If we're part of that group and we're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and we've just experienced the thunder and the lightning and the awesomeness of the smoke and the earthquake, we'd be right there with them worshiping the awesomeness of God because that's really easy to do in that moment. It's not so hard to live for God when you're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. Let's correlate it this way. It's not so hard on Sunday morning when you're standing in church singing holy, holy, holy to live for God. That's not so hard. But what about Monday morning when your neighbor borrows your mower and doesn't return it? Or somebody spreads rumors about you? or there's fighting in your family. How do you respond then? That's what you find the Book of Covenant of, is about. The Book of the Covenant is all about real life. And I'm just going to give you one example from it, a very practical example. And you're going to think I have a screw loose when you see this first one, but let's not skip over it. It's the hardest one, actually, I think, in the Book of the Covenant. Look with me, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. Now, you, probably most people are going to look at that and say, okay, that totally doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to be buying a slave. Now, on the surface, catch what's going on here. On the surface, God's saying slaves have the right to be free, and they have the right to be set free after a fixed period of time. 
Now think about what this is implying just on the surface level. On the surface level, it's saying that Egypt acted illegally by keeping Israel captive for 400 years. There was no freedom. There was no year of jubilee when they were set free. But on another level, just below the surface, we're remembering that Israel themselves was a former slave nation. And they're only free because of God's intervention. Remember how He reminded them of this? He started out just before the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And God's saying, don't you forget, this is who you were, this is who you are now. And it's because of my intervention. Now act like it. So in the big picture, justice is speaking. And justice is making it very, very clear. It would be unthinkable for my people to treat other people the way that Pharaoh once treated you. God's saying to people who belong to him, you're mine. You better live like you're mine and live completely differently. Now, the rule that he just gave them is completely unheard of in the world, in the known world where people kept slaves. No one would be setting their slaves free, and watch how this is set up. That's just at the surface level. There's so much more going on here. Let me take you to the next verse. It starts again with verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. Now in our 21st century, this is really, really hard to understand because we come to something like this and we would expect the Bible to say, God abolished slavery. At first glance, we would, we would read that and say, what? He's letting slavery stay? What he does instead is he's allowing forms of servitude with safeguards in place to protect both the dignity and the welfare and the self-respect of those who are serving. Without defending slavery, the Bible's assuming that there's some form of it that's still going to be part of the world economy but not in the way that we think in our 21st century mind. Actually, the word slave here is even inappropriate. It should be the word servant. In the Hebrew notes that you have in your notes this morning, you see it on the screen, the word that's actually used is the word abad. It's talking about an employee, anyone who hires themselves out to work. And by implication, it says, in this case, it's a bond servant, someone who's aligned themselves with a master. So catch what's going on. God is transforming an ancient common practice, and He's carefully regulating the relationships in order to eliminate any chance that there would be abuse, because He's saying, you're different. I'm going to make you different than all the nations of the earth, and people are going to know that you belong to Me because of the choices that you make and because of your behavior. You've been set apart. Now, I admit this is really tough to grasp. Here's why for us. We struggle to grasp the concept of master-slave because of our national memory. We immediately, when we hear the word slave, we think of the Civil War in the United States. And so our mind goes to the blue and the gray, and we think of everything that led up to it. But there are vast differences between what the Bible describes and the ugliness of what happened in the 17 and 1800s. 
In the ancient world, most servitude was voluntary. Unless you were a prisoner of war and you were taken as a captive, most, and I mean overwhelming majority, was individuals who sold themselves into slavery and people hired themselves out as slaves, usually for this reason, because they were very poor and they couldn't feed their family, they couldn't take care of them, or they had a huge debt and they needed to pay it off. So the equivalent today would be when you think more like an apprentice or an understudy or, or someone who's come in as an indentured servant. They're doing it because they have a purpose in mind. And so they live in their master's home and they work in their master's home and in exchange they get room and they get bored and they get a fair wage. But involuntary slavery, it was completely forbidden by God. God said, you're not going to go there. You can't do that. It's forbidden in my economy. And actually in verse 16, he says, there's a death penalty for slave traders. Look with me on the screen. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. So the Bible condemns the entire concept, the entire modern practice of slavery. And so what happened in Africa, the sin of man-stealing, God said that's totally not acceptable. You can't go there. But remarkably, during the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, many people tried to defend slavery on the basis of the Bible, where they were cherry-picking verses, choosing things that they wanted to use to defend it. We'll go back to Exodus 21. The Hebrew slaves, God says, are going to be set free on a sabbatical year. Once they have served the agreed amount upon of time, they have this chance to start over. And when they're set free, they're not going to be sent away empty-handed. The master was actually required to give them a new start in life. Look with me on the screen, Deuteronomy 15. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. So the masters actually had this responsibility to set their slaves up, their former slaves, to succeed in business and giving them from their own personal storehouse. But there's still much more going on here. Let's keep going. Verse 5, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. And his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So there's special provision made for this individual who says, No, I don't want to go out. I, I want to serve him permanently. Now, this is an extraordinary circumstance. This wouldn't be something that happened commonly. You've got a slave who's deciding, This particular master of mine is so good. He is so kind and is so generous. I don't want to leave his household. I want to be part of his house. Now, in order for the process to take place, there had to be a public declaration that this slave had now chosen to align himself with his master. And then they had to go before the elders, which were the representatives of God. So it says they need to go before God and make the public declaration so everybody would know it was not forced, but it was a voluntary decision. And, and then they would go to the master's home and pull out the earlobe real long and take a, a, like an ice pick and all and drive it through the earlobe, marking that individual to say, that one belongs to his master for a very specific reason. 
The servant is making a public commitment to do what his master asked of him, and he's doing it for life. Why a hole through the ear? Well, nothing is more important to a servant who works for a master than his ability to hear what the master has called him to do. It's the most important tool they have. They can't obey the master's voice. They can't hear the master's voice. They can't do what the master has asked them if they don't yield their ear to listen to the master. This is a really similar thing. Jesus, what he said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep know me when I call them, John 10. So the servant is making this public commitment to do what his master asks of him for life. And there's this powerful imagery going on showing that this one is attached to himself by going to the master's doorhouse and physically having a nail driven through his ear. It leaves blood on the doorpost, and it's a physical sign to everyone saying, this guy, he's attached to this person permanently. Now, we would step back in the 21st century and say, why would anyone make this kind of a choice? Why would they deny themselves and bind themselves to a master for life? Well, the Bible actually answers the question. The answer is the servant has a love for his master that is so deep because the master has provided a greater way of life, something that they would want to be part of. Let me illustrate this by telling you about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln went to a slave auction, and he was appalled by what he saw. It was one of the things that drove him to write the Emancipation Proclamation. When he arrived at the slave auction, he saw a young lady who had been put up on the auction block, and she'd been stripped of her clothing. That's what they commonly did with the slaves. Put them on display, and he could look in her eyes and he could see the story that was going on in her life because she looked with fury and rage upon everyone who was surrounding her. She had been used and abused throughout the course of her life, and this was just one more humiliation. Well, the bidding began, and as the bids flew back and forth, individuals shouting out the number that they would pay, everyone was shocked when Abraham Lincoln entered the bidding process. And he began outbidding everyone else going for the highest number, and he actually outbid the highest number, and he bought this young woman. So he made his way to the auction block to pay the auctioneer. The young woman is in tow with him, and she's looking at him with rage in her eyes as they hand the paper over to Abraham Lincoln, saying that she is now his property. And very boldly, Abraham Lincoln is encountered by this young woman when she shouts out to him, now what are you going to do with me? And what I want you to see on the screen is the dialogue that took place between Abraham Lincoln and this young woman. I'm going to set you free. Free, she asked. Free for what? Just free, Lincoln answered, completely free. Free to do whatever I want to do? Yes, free to do what you want to do. Free to say whatever I want to say? Yes, free to say whatever you want to say. Free to go wherever I want to go, she added with skepticism. Lincoln answered, you are free to go anywhere you want to go. Then I'm going with you. 
Who would make that kind of a decision? Why that kind of attachment? Exodus 21 says this slave who voluntarily swore an oath of allegiance to the master said publicly, verse, 20, verse 5, chapter 21, I love my master. Not because of any form of tyranny, not because that person is forced into it, but a voluntary act of love. Why? Because of the greatness of the master, the one who had provided everything. What kind of a master deserves that kind of love? Well, one who takes care of us, one who meets our needs, one who treats us like a friend, one who has our best interests at heart. It's only natural for a servant to love that kind of a master in return. So King David wrote about this exact kind of imagery when he was thinking of himself when he wrote the book of Psalms. Look with me on the screen at this. Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. He's playing into this imagery now. But my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sins you did not require. And then I said, here I am, I have come. See, so he's saying, I, I came voluntarily, here I am. And my name is actually recorded in the records that I belong to. I've attached myself to you. And then David goes on to say, I desire to do your will, O God. You are my God. Your law is in my heart. So David here is referring to this ancient custom, and he's comparing himself to the servant who's had his ear pierced, one who will hear his master and obey his master. So back to the story. In context, Israel, this ancient nation, has been called to a completely new way of life. They've been called to obey God in every single circumstance. And if you're going to please God, you're going to do what God has asked you to do. And obeying Him as a servant would obey a master. But there's so much more still, church. We have a master who made himself a slave Philippians chapter 2. Look at this. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that's the story of salvation. The Son of God, according to what Mark 10 records, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So as this ultimate servant, God Himself, the Master, becomes the servant, and as the ultimate servant, Jesus binds Himself to God's will. Even when it meant suffering, He's pierced to the cross. Even though it meant death and dying, He's dying for our sin. And that is the greatest act of servitude that any master ever accomplished, his death on the cross. Well, let's parallel that to where we're at in the church today. When you are loved to that degree by that kind of a master who would even lay down his life for you, why would you pursue anything else? Why would you not attach yourself to that one? So what Scripture compels us to do is to give ourselves entirely to Him, completely His, and make a public declaration of our allegiance saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love my Master. I'm part of what He did for me. 
I'm unashamed to say I'm bound to Him forever. Now, following that kind of master is not bondage. It's true freedom. That's why Jesus said this in John chapter 8. If the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. So, Moses brings the ordinances down to the people. And they hear it, and they hear them all read. And I'm talking about chapters 21, 22, 23. We only looked at one. There's a whole huge list of them. He brings them down to the people, and we read this in verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, that's a daring promise, right? And too bad it wasn't true. It'd be great if it was. It'd be great if they could do everything that they just committed to. But you find that few scenes in the Bible are more dramatic than what's described in chapter 24. You'll see that in a moment. For three chapters, God gives His people reasonable and appropriate laws to conduct their lives personally, socially, in response to God, and God's Word is heard, and God's Word is understood, and understanding God's Word demands a promise. And because they know and understand what obedience to God now looks like, they're going to be responsible in every area of life. And so they say out loud, we can do that. We're totally in. We sign up for it. However, just like us, they too are natural-born sinners. And so throughout the entire nation, there isn't a man, a woman, or child who can actually keep the law. None of them can do it. I told you a couple weeks ago when we were looking at God's commandments being given on Mount Sinai that God's law is actually a gift to us because God loves the world so much that He gave us the law to show us how far short of the glory of God we actually fall. The last time we were together, I said the law of God is actually a mirror. It reveals, it exposes sin. What it actually does is it shows me just how dirty I am. It can't cleanse me. It can't make me better, but it can show how far short of God's glory I fall because the ultimate purpose of the law, the ultimate purpose of the commands of God is to drive us to Jesus. Look with me on the screen, Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So Moses reads the law, and they all say, we're in. And in response to their commitment before God, Moses is directed by God to make a sacrifice and to bring some blood before him. Watch this in verse 8. This is so relational to what you're about to do in communion. Verse 8, so Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you're new to church, you want to know what Moses is doing here is he's engaged in a really ancient, ancient ritual, this ancient custom of sealing a covenant with blood. And so he begins splattering it directly on the people. And it sounds incredibly barbaric. If you read in the E2E book this week, you'll see in verse 30, or section 35, Rich writes about this in detail because in Hebrews it says what Moses did is he took um, wool and he took hyssop branches and he began sprinkling it on the people, flashing it out there on them. And too bad if you're wearing white clothing that day because it's getting on your face and on your eyelids and it's hitting your hands and people are becoming a bloody mess. 
Why so much symbolism? Think about what's communicated here. What did God say in the book of Genesis? The life is in the blood. Blood shows the covenant is a matter of life or death. What they have committed to, so that you understand this bloody mess that's going on here. In the ancient world, if this was a blood covenant, it meant that an animal had to die for the blood to be harvested. And if either of the parties who entered into the covenant broke the agreement, what had happened to the animal would happen to that person who broke the agreement. And so the blood is used to seal the covenant. It's not written in pen and ink. It's sealed in blood. And breaking a blood covenant with God held the threat of God's judgment for anyone who broke the law. So just like ancient Israel, all of humanity lives out their life in the presence of a holy God. Whether or not He's acknowledged, we all live and move and have our breathing before Him. And that same God calls us to worship Him. And like ancient Israel, God commands His humans to keep His laws. But unfortunately, we can't keep it any better than what they did. So every one of us, every person on earth stands guilty before God and we're under the threat of God's judgment because we all fall short of the glory of God. But the great news is Jesus came to deal with that very issue. Jesus came to take away our failure, to deal with the reality that we can't live a perfect life, that we can't keep God's law. And so He did it by the shedding of His blood. So we see in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the good news today is that even though we fall short of God, we can still belong to God on the basis of this new blood covenant. Here it comes, communion. Get your mind ready for this, Luke 22. And in the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. Because it's the blood of Jesus that justifies us, redeems us, cleanses us, forgives us, and releases us. Say amen if you agree with that. We're saved by the blood. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. It was the Son of God. And He said, it's the blood of the new covenant. So we find in Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that my salvation is not based on my performance, but rather on the blood of Jesus Christ. Because my performance stinks. I'm guessing yours does too, so don't look judgmentally at me, right? We fall short, so we have Jesus, which is probably the best setup you've ever heard for communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that He was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's where Jesus stops talking. And here's where Paul starts talking. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So you are about to be a witness to the person on your right and on your left that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you participate in communion. You take it so seriously that you say, I'm not unashamed to be attached to my master. And I believe not only that he died for me, but that he's coming again. That's what it says there. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And because it's so serious, Paul gives this warning. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup, which is exactly what we allow time for here at New Hope. Before you come up to any one of the tables or in the back, if you're going to go into the atrium, to pick up the elements, take time to examine yourself. Where are you at in your relationship with God? Is Jesus your Lord and Master? If you've fallen short this week, take some time to confess what you've done. Do it in the quietness of your seat. It's just between you and God. When you're ready, come up to the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now is for you. If you're able to physically stand, would you join me in doing that? I want you to remember that what you're about to do is not being done to make you saved, it's because you are saved. The debt has already been paid, amen? That's why Jesus said, it is finished. On the night that he was betrayed, he held up bread, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In that same meal, he held up the cup, we believe it to be the third cup, the cup of redemption in the Passover meal, in which he said, this is my blood shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness that just took place. Hundreds of individuals who have said they are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have willingly attached themselves to their master. God, I ask that as a result of having studied your word and heard your word, that we would live like we understand your word this week. I'm grateful for your grace and for your mercy, that you would strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit would be our greatest desire cause us to walk as those who belong to a new way of life. We ask for this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, our King, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.